Oh, you got beef jerky. Breast smells good. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Breast smells like beef jerky. Mm-hmm. Mm, nothing like it on a yeah. Monday. Yeah. That's <laughs> my lunch. Yeah. everyone and welcome to Angel Talk, Reflections of an Ambitious Angel Mom. My name is Philip Kerrigan. I'm the Executive Director of Raise for Rowan. We are the organization that helps families suffering from the loss of a child with funeral cost assistance and emotional support. I am joined by, as always, the Ambitious Angel Mom herself. Say hello to the people, Bryn. Hello, everybody. How's it going? It's going great. How are uh, you, Philip? I am good. I am good. I've caught you in between vacations. Oh, yeah. How is vacation number one? I mean, this is like, people are like, oh my gosh, how many vacations does she go on? Um, it <laughs> but was, it's the summertime. Uh, yes. We try to stay busy with the kids. Yeah. And um, we went to like Chelan for almost a week. Yeah. It was magical. I bet. Uh, super hot. Along the water and everything. It was beautiful. Yeah. And then there's nothing like looking out in like the the range, you know, and yeah. then you see the wineries and the vineyards and stuff. Cool. It's just a really beautiful place. You almost yeah. feel like you're... I've never been to Italy or anything, but it's like a mini Italy to me. I'm like, oh, this is just beautiful. That's so cool. Yeah. We visited one uh, winery there, and it was kid-friendly, but you could look out over the lake, and then um, you you just see the rolling hills of the the vineyard, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, Washington's got a lot of cool places to visit. It really does. We kind of have all... We have it Everything. all, right? Because yeah. you got the rainforest up up north, mm-hmm. and then you go to the you go to the more desert climate. It's really cool place. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> place for sure. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I love it. But speaking of, you hit on some international stuff right there. Saying something felt like Italy. Speaking yes. of worldly things, so today's podcast is a special one because it is on grieving in other cultures. This might be a podcast that we uh, revisit from time to time because you can always focus on different cultures specifically. Mm -hmm. But today we talked to an individual named Joe DiCarlo. He's the global ambassador for a charity called Medical Teams International. Uh, It is much like us in that it's not a pure church uh, organization or faith-based organization, but they use their faith uh, to compel them to go into different areas of the world and help refugees specifically and help them specifically with healthcare issues. Mm-hmm. And then they have this really neat little mobile dental van that they actually deploy here in Washington State to go wow. to different folks who don't have the capacity to, to go get dental care. That is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a cool, huge organization. No kidding. Um, they are they're, they're in a lot of the places that, frankly, very few people right now have the desire or resources to go to places mm-hmm. like Uganda and Guatemala and different, you know, wow. Jordan and places like that where they need help with the refugee encampments and That's the amazing. different medical issues that come together. Yeah. So uh, Bryn was actually out that day. Um, so it was just me talking to Joe, mm-hmm. but for sure it was a really amazing conversation about the different things he's seen. We focused really on two different areas. The first was the people that they've helped in the past, the actual refugees, and what life is like in a refugee encampment, but then also the psychological effects for individuals working for Medical Teams International who do see children die in these encampments, who do see people pass away from disease or old age or, or, you know, even just famine in those local areas and the PTSD that they go through 
and how they help get them get them through it so and they probably really don't have resources in areas like that right right one of the big ones that we talk about we hit on it a little bit you may hear the name mentioned uh rachel is a lady that i met through medical teams international who is a ugandan refugee so she worked she is from uganda originally and she was working in a refugee camp on the border of uganda and sudan so she was helping sudanese refugees who made it over because there was a huge war there Mm -hmm. and um, she was pregnant at the time that i met her and she unfortunately lost her child oh my gosh uh, which is not a it's not a rare occurrence in those areas oh i'm sure it's not Um, there's a lot of women who will have multiple miscarriages Mm -hmm. multiple stillbirths They'll lose children within the first year. The mortality rate in some of those areas is really high. Crazy little piece of information. You know how long the average stay is for a refugee who has fled their country and now lives in a refugee camp. Do you know how long they end up staying in those refugee camps? No. 17 years is the average for a person to live in a refugee encampment, which is incredible. You've basically up... Imagine having your home uprooted because of war or famine Mm -hmm. or an oppressive government and having to move to Canada, but not to Canada, Canada, to like a camp just on the border and living there for 17 years. That's crazy stuff that some of these I can't even imagine it. Like it's (laughs) just so far out of my realm. I just don't. Yeah. You have no, I feel like you have no capacity. No, I really don't. I know. It's terrible. Yeah. And then where do they go from there? Like they usually can, you know, find... Oddly, Some way to yeah. move so, on or... Joe and I talked about that a little bit too. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the thing is for most of these folks, they're just like all of us mm-hmm. in that what they really want to do is go home, right? Your yeah. customs, your language, your what you're, you did as a job, your home, it's all physically there in your original place. So a lot of them want to get repatriated. They just mm-hmm. can't because the government is oppressing people or there's war or something like that. So it really depends on the situation. They either repatriate uh, into the new country that they're that they're living in. They become patriots of those of like they become citizens of those countries eventually, mm-hmm. uh, or they get farmed out. I mean, that sounds weird to say, but like what they'll do is they'll apply for asylum here in the United States, and so there'll be organizations who help them try to apply. You see a lot of folks from Somalia who mm-hmm. end up in places like Minnesota. Because oh, that, that's, a, that's a state that said, yes, we will take we will take refugees from from Somalia. So it's it's kind of interesting where they all end up landing. No they, kidding. They don't all get to go back home, though. Wow. Yeah. Which is really crazy. It so we, we talked to Joe specifically, though, about some of the things he's seeing today as well with uh, we hit on COVID. That's for sure. We talk about coronavirus and sort of the impact that it's had on refugee encampments, the impact that it's had on the world. And he has a few surprising things to say about that. Wow. So, yeah. The other thing we're going to do, which I am super excited about, Bryn is not, <laughs> is our segment uh, this week. Because we have an international vibe to it this week, we're actually going to do a Where in the World is Race for Rowan. You've heard of Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. We are going to do a special trivia segment with Bryn, Where in the World is Race for Rowan. So stay tuned for that. She's going to love it. Not thrilled. <laughs> We're not going to, I'm not going to talk you off anymore. I'm going to let Joe talk about the work that Medical Teams International does, um, how they are navigating through through death and through uh, grieving 
in this sort of new age of coronavirus and what they see there and, and how their staff deals with it. So here is our interview with Joe. Okay, so we are here with Joe DiCarlo. He is the Global Ambassador of Medical Teams International, a wide-ranging charity that goes into different developing parts of the world and helps folks with medical care. Joe, thank you for coming onto the show. Glad to be here. Awesome. So most folks listening may not know exactly what Medical Teams International is. Can you talk about Medical Teams International and what it does for the world? Today, we need, to, we need to look at our past. And Medical Teams was started in 1979 by Ron Post, a simple businessman in Salem, Oregon, who was watching the evening news um, on TV. And it was about the killing fields in Cambodia. And Ron noticed that there were a lot of refugees fleeing into Thailand. Uh, what's interesting and what's great about this story, what's important about this story, is that Ron didn't just watch the news, he acted. Mm. He was determined to do something. He organized, he was a businessman, got a bunch of medical doctors together, uh, went on local TV mm-hmm. and, and made the appeal, raised the money. In two weeks, they were on a plane to Thailand and they served uh, Cambodian refugees in the refugee camps wow. there for several months. Um, that's how Medical Teams was birthed. And I like to share that story because it speaks to the power of one. Yeah. You know, um, I'll, you know, I can tell you um, that we need to stop being observers in our world mm. and what's going on in our world uh, and be a person of action. And I mm. think it's even more relevant today than it was in 1979. Right. Um, but what do we do? Um, we, st- we stay true to our roots. And when there's a disaster in the world, it could be a man-made disaster like war, uh, which causes uh, people to flee in a refugee situation, mm-hmm. or it could be a sudden disaster where it's an earthquake or a tsunami. Mm-hmm. But in each of those cases, uh, when the health system has completely failed, let's say in an earthquake, the first thing we do is we provide direct medical care in a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sudden onset disaster uh, and people are dying of preventable causes uh, simply because the health system is not up and running. Right. Uh, so medical teams firstly provides uh, direct medical care until the health system is up and running again. Now in the US, we also not only work overseas, but we also work with our neighbors here in our own communities in the states of Washington and Oregon. Um, we have a US program that provides free dental care right. uh, to people who don't have access to care. We have 12 Winnebago vans that have two complete dental operatories in each one to provide care. So that's that's the first thing we do, direct care. Secondly is community system strengthening. Each community has strengths that they can bring to improve the health uh, of, their, of their own people. Uh, health education in a refugee camp or an impoverished community. Mm -hmm. And this includes working with faith leaders Mm. in those communities uh, because faith leaders, believe it or not, are the gatekeepers to how messages are going out to the community. Right, right. Faith leader doesn't think you you, uh, are in agreement with their tradition or their culture. He can certainly stop those messages. So we work closely with them. And lastly, Uh, What we do is the health system strengthening. Um, 
We, we work with the health facilities to make sure they have the right medicines, the right equipment. Uh, we build connections uh, and trust with the health system so that we can, they can thrive uh, when, we, when we leave the area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, in our work uh, in the US programs, like I said, we provide the dental care, uh, but we're also working on a strategy where we can provide, uh, it's called Care and Connect. We not only do dental, but we also do health screenings. Mm. This is a strategy that we've been developing so that those, so that then we could connect that person, if it's high blood pressure, to a partnering hospital to provide the care that's needed to save life and improve yeah. life. Yeah. Um, in our worldwide programs, globally, we, as I mentioned, we work in refugee camps. Our largest pro program is in Uganda, mm -hmm. in Africa where we uh, provide care to over a million refugees. In Lebanon as well with Syrian refugees, Bangladesh, Tanzania, and in Colombia now, uh, migrants from Venezuela, 2.2 million right. migrants uh, were serving there as well. Mm -hmm. This was all of our programming that I would describe to you uh, as of March 1st, 2020. Right. And then there was COVID. Yeah, something weird happened. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, something happened. A global there. pandemic, nothing. And we. <laughs> And organizationally, uh, Philip, we did a global pivot. Wow. Um, we are still working, of course, in the refugee camps, but we pivoted our programs, first of all, to protect our staff mm -hmm. with the, with the uh, personal protection equipment that they need, and also uh, pivoting our programming to protect the people in the refugee camps. If you can imagine, we, you hear about here social distancing yeah. and washing your hands in a crowded refugee camp in Bangladesh. Those are luxuries. Right. And so um, we are really working hard to prevent um, COVID from spreading uh, in the camps. Yeah. Working yeah. alongside the UN as well and local governments. Yeah. Um, in the US, um, I'll just say uh, quickly, um, uh, we, we were working with Nisiqua, we were working with Swedish Hospital and providing assistance to their COVID testing. Oh, wow. And then, and then they invited us to uh, actually take over the testing. So in working oh. with Washington Public Health, we're actually doing COVID testing in Seattle King County areas, as well as right now, today, this morning, in Yakima County. Wow. Um, where there are hot spots of COVID coming right. up and we're using our mobile vans in order to provide uh, COVID testing. Yeah. Partnering with um, University of Washington, so we, we send all of the tests to, that, to their lab there, and then the results come back, and then we inform the patients. These are people who are migrant workers, uh, people who, uh, who are homeless, mm -hmm. people who, uh, who don't have access to testing as readily. So we're working with the local uh, state institutions in order to ensure that people get the testing that they need. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you hit on something. I would be remiss if I didn't if we didn't actually talk about this right now. COVID, of course, is on everybody's mind. We did a podcast at the very beginning of it when a uh, shutdown happened here in Washington state on grief and isolation, for example, because, you know, you, these feelings of grief came and, and, and isolation came and all those sort of different things. So we we are acutely aware of it. We we have to ask questions about it. The United States, obviously, we've had mixed reviews on our response to, to COVID, um, but I sometimes think that we're not um, aware of the struggles that developing countries or even refugee camps to go even further 
might have with something like this because they don't have access to the things that we have. Can you talk a little bit about struggles that you see often, specifically in refugee camps, but overall in developing countries as it relates to health and simple things like how do we get how do we get folks clean water to wash their hands not even how do we encourage folks to wash their hands how do we even get them the water to do it how, can you talk a little bit about that yes i think um, a part of what we do as a community of humanitarian organizations is to make sure that there's a complementary uh package of services that are available uh to a, a, a population like a refugee camp so in, in Bangladesh, for example, we're serving 160,000 people in the of Rohingya refugees mm. in, in Kupatapalam refugee camp there. And we provide the health systems. We provide the health facilities for the population. Others are providing water and sanitation, uh, food security. And so we work together uh, we never do our work in isolation. It's always uh, together with the with the local agencies, with the local government, mm -hmm. if they're involved, as well as international agencies. So what we were asked to do in this refugee camp in Bangladesh, for example, is to transition one of our health facilities into a COVID isolation and treatment center. Mm -hmm. uh, and so right now there are 71 COVID positive uh, cases in this refugee camp of it's one of the largest refugee camps in the world we're we're only serving a portion of that population right uh, and so so it's not so bad uh, and people uh, we do have a few cases in our in our treatment center so so in while providing the health portion of it of sector of the work there are others that are dealing with the water and sanitation mm. but let me just share something that's quite that you may not have think thought about you know in africa uh uganda for example where they face uh, uh epidemics like cholera and they face epidemics like ebola right uh, they did not wait uganda did not wait until COVID approach uh, came into the country they shut down immediately mm. Uh, and travel was not possible at all. Many of our staff are working in refugee camps uh, during the week, and they were traveling home on the wow. weekends. Uh, so they're staying in tents, and they're staying in, um, in, in shared quarters during the week in the camp, but then going home. Yeah. However, when the shutdown occurred, um, they were not allowed to travel. Right. And this, it, this increased the... Um, the stress level, right? Uh, the anxiety level. Of course, they could call their family on the phones, but uh, this was something that um, we really needed to pay attention to. At medical teams, I've been working from home now for probably eighteen weeks. You know, not a bad gig. Yeah, right? yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but in a refugee camp, when you're not sure how your family's doing, right. your staff and your staff, you know, you just don't have. Uh, the ability or the permission to travel, um, then it causes a lot of anxiety yeah. and the inability to do your work the best that you can. So these were some of the, ch the challenges that we face. Um, one interesting thing, too, is we talk about contact tracing yeah. in the U.S. That's a common phraseology in the developing world. Huh. So our staff in Uganda, you know, I would say to them, you know, well, we're not quite we're not really used to contact tracing in the U.S. Right. And they're shocked. Yeah. Because we taught them what it was. Yeah. But, 
but they're really, um, they're, we're, we're becoming more unified in our understandings mm -hmm. of development issues and, and uh, as Americans as well, uh, yeah. and the challenges that we face caused by COVID, like a pandemic. Like so you th so so it appears that maybe something like Ebola, which is really, really can rip through an entire uh, country, um, you think that that may have actually helped prepare developing countries and refugee camps for some of what we're seeing today. They actually were on it a little bit faster. I, yes. As, as a country like Tan, like Uganda, um, they were better prepared than we were, wow. frankly. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And because we don't think of the issue that way. I want to talk to you, though, a little bit, actually, personally, for you personally, what made you get involved with medical teams in Africa? Because I find it fascinating when folks get into an industry like this, which can take you to a lot of places, separate you from your family every once in a while. What was it about Medical Teams International that got you interested? I think for me, it's, it helps me fulfill a life calling, uh, and that is primarily serving others mm. and serving um, those who are less advantaged, the disadvantaged, the forgotten, the marginalized. Uh, I believe that, you know, everyone is created in the image of God, that everyone is important um, and everyone deserves um, care. Uh, and so whether you're a neighbor here in the U.S. that doesn't have access to health care or whether you're um, thousands and thousands of miles away in Africa, uh, the important thing is that uh, that you have access to care, access to health. And so uh, this is really been an opportunity to fulfill a life calling that I have, um, and and I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. I've learned a lot from the people that I've served, yeah. actually. Yeah, I've learned a lot from the people at Medical Teams International that I've had a chance to talk to. It's such an awesome organization. You guys do incredible work. Where in the world is... Ray's for Rowan. Okay. I'm going to hide these now. I just look. <laughs> you can see them. Okay, okay. I'm all right. good all right. with the answers. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is a new segment. Probably, I mean, I can't imagine this happening more than one time, but we'll see how this works. It's Where in the World is Ray's for Rowan? Playing on the Where in the World is Carmen Sanigo. We are joined. <laughs> so, Bryn, Bryn is obviously here. We are also joined by, say your name. Nikki Hanks. <laughs> Our administrative director. You may remember her from Get to Know RFR, the Nikki edition. Nikki, that welcome right. back. Thank you. Thank you. Bryn uh, is, is having you here because she feels powerless on her own. This apparently. is not my cup of tea, folks. I am just not. I'm very clueless. I must live in my little uh, bubble in the United States, and I do not pay attention to anything else. Well, I'm excited. Which I'm is excited. horrible. I but, feel like a lot of pressure. Uh, well, yeah, you, there is a lot of pressure because she's basically told you she's not answering a single one of these. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have some pressure. Okay. So what I've done is all I got. It's just super simple. I have okay. three countries here. I just okay. have three countries, and I have five clue, five to six clues per country. And then when you feel like you know the answer, you just say it out loud. Are you ready? This is very easy. Okay. Okay. Are you ready, Nikki? Ready. Okay. Here is country number one. So, fact number one about country number one. About 60% of the world's rainforests are located in this country. This country's soccer team has won the World Cup five times. One of the most famous statues in the world, Christ the Redeemer, overlooks one of its largest cities. And the main language of this South American country is Portuguese. 
Can I guess? Yes. Brazil. Brazil, Brazil yeah. is correct. Look at this. Oh, see, this is awesome. Two. You gotta have a little bit more confidence. I told you. This is good. Good job, everybody. Nicely done. I knew after question number two, <laughs> or clue number two. Uh, she's number like, two oh, brought yeah, me to David it. Beckham, but I'm like, where's David from? Beckham? <laughs> Oh David Beckham, that's awesome. Sea squirrel. Okay, here we go. So we got the first one right. We're one for one. Yes. All right, here we go. Country number two. The two official languages of this African country are Swahili and English. The national animal of this country is the lion, which you'd be like, well, yeah, there's a bunch of African countries that have lions. So obviously that one doesn't narrow it down. The capital city is Nairobi. It's famous for producing marathon runners. In fact, 75% of all gold medal winning long distance runners come from this country. 75% of them. And it is home. This ought to give it away. It is home to Mount Kenya, the second highest peak in Africa. It's home to Mount Kenya. Well, is that the name? Is it Kenya? It is Kenya. Yeah. That is correct. <laughs> I thought this was a trick question. No. Our trick clue. I'm no. like, do I say Kenya? Because say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is Kenya. I'm like, well, you just said the country. Yeah. So. If you notice, the easiest clue is the last clue. See what I'm saying? Well, yeah, and I have no, to get yeah. all the way to the easiest clue. That's, that's, that's not. You don't, don't beat yourself up like that. You can do it. Look, you're two for two. You wow. guys are two for two. Okay. We're, okay. We're doing better than I thought. Okay, here we go. Country number three, final country. Here we go. This European country shares a border with nine other countries. It is home to the castle that is said to be the inspiration for Disney's castle. Its capital city was split in half for much of the 20th century. It is home to delicious classics like sauerkraut, bratwurst, and beer. Lots of beer. BMW, Mercedes-Benz, and my mom were all born in this country. Germany. 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 See? Yeah. Look at that. I knew that one by clue number two again. Yeah. 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 See, look at that. This this wasn't that bad. Well, that, no, that was actually much better than I thought. We could do this one again, correct? Mm, Maybe not. All right. Well, that's the one time apparently where in the world is raised for road segment. Thanks, everybody. Uh, so this might be one of the last technical questions that I have, and then we'll get into more of how your staff kind of interact with the grief that they see on a daily basis. Uh, what are some of the toughest places right now in the world it's having the world is having trouble with COVID no matter what. Uh, but what are some of the places that maybe some of even our listeners don't know about that are some of the toughest places that Medical Teams International actually goes into? Yes, um, I would say in my 20 year history with Medical Teams, um, the, the toughest places have been have been countries like Yemen and Somalia. Wow. Uh, in Haiti, uh, Afghanistan. And let me describe what I mean by a tough place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are three criteria that we need in order to actually respond effectively. Okay. Uh, we need, there needs to be the need for one, to make sure that it's needs-based and nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. There's security in which to operate. And then the resources are there uh, in order to operate. Um, places like uh, Somalia, um, where the security is just too right. um, too impossible. Yeah, 
Um, and also, you know, uh, what makes it tough is also seeing the being overwhelmed by the need, uh, particularly the needs of, of women and children, the mm -hmm. most vulnerable in society, um, and and not having enough in order to respond. Yeah. So um, so those are those are some of the areas that we've had the toughest situations. Um, I mentioned Somalia. Haiti is another example where um, we have been operational there for many years, but we, we cannot get a foothold there because of, of the political situation in the country right. and, and the dysfunction of the leadership that just makes it impossible for us to even register in order to be operational. Yeah. And so, uh, so those are some serious challenges that we face in our world. Um, there are places, though, I believe we should be, and we'll, we're still looking to, to advance in those areas, places like South Sudan, um, Iraq, mm. you know, and, and there are areas where uh, I think we can make a, a difference uh, in the health sector, and, and I believe we should be, and we're just, we're just growing into those areas. It strikes me that one of the common denominators between lots of the places you talked about is the length of time. They seem to be ongoing. Somalia, we've heard about since the 90s. Uh, Afghanistan, obviously, is America's longest running uh, conflict zone. And then Haiti, of course, has also been one that we've heard about since the late 80s, early 90s. It's Maybe the toughness of it is the fact that you can't, you can't ever seem to get stability. That's right. And, and in cases where you have displaced people, so we're seeing a lot of refugees in Uganda, we're seeing refugees. Uh, how many years refugees from Syria have mm -hmm. been fleeing? Have been um, fleeing the country for their lives. Um, do you know the average stay of a refugee, um, according to the UNHCR, is 17 years? Wow, that's the average stay. So if if we're looking at working in a refugee setting, we have to look think long term. Yeah. Uh, Philip, I've been in a refugee camp in southwest Uganda, speaking with a woman from the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I asked her, I said, what do you like most about being in this camp? And she said, I like being here because I can go to bed at night and not fear for my life. Wow. And I said, what do you like least about this camp? And she said, I'm stateless. I have no passport. She yeah. said, when I came here, uh, I thought I would be here three months. Yeah. That was 19 years ago. Unbelievable. And that's, that's a common story. Yeah. It's a common story. Yeah, I mean, these are folks without a home now. Folks without a home. And folks I am, without a passport. And I imagine you have a lot of refugees who end up in these camps who probably would tell you more than anything, they all they would really want is to go back home. They don't necessarily want to escape into another country that has different customs and values and, and language, they'd actually rather be home, but they just can't. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, and, and they're not leaving the country for economic advantage. Mm. They're leaving the country because they're forced to leave. Yeah. Uh, and, and they have no choice, but you're, you're right. They just want to go back to their lives that they, and their homes yeah. that they were used to. Yeah. L let's talk a little bit about grieving and and how some of how some of these other cultures uh, honor those who have passed can you give some examples of some uh, unique funeral or memorial traditions that you've seen around the world that people may not know about i can share some of my um my experiences i, I first need to say you know i need we need to 
you know, I, I can't generalize, you know, or I want to avoid generalizations because um, uh, people grieve and, and traditions are different yeah. um, depending on the situation. Um, there are also, it's difficult to separate religious tradition and culture yeah. uh, in, in many, in many uh, countries around the world. Ours included. Um, yeah, ours is included, yes. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is the role of the village, um, the role of the village leader or the faith leader is extremely important, mm. um, not only in everyday life, but at time of death and part of grieving. Uh, the, the leadership that is needed in those times for quick decisions and working with the family uh, comes from the village leader, comes from the faith leader. And they often can be the same, but not always. Mm. Um, and, and, um, and typically, if uh, that is where the person who has passed away, that is where they are buried. They are brought to their home village. Uh, just actually last week, um, one of our former Uganda country directors um, who has retired passed away mm -hmm. quite unexpectedly. And he passed away in, in the hospital in Kampala, the capital. Uh, and his body was, uh, there was a vigil at his church in Kampala. Mm -hmm. And then the body was brought to his home uh, for overnight. Then it traveled to uh, his hometown uh, of Lira town. Uh, and that's probably about a six hour drive. Mm. Um, and it went to his home church there. And then his body at night was brought to his home there. Mm. And then and then the next day it was brought to his village, which is about 11 kilometers outside of Lara town, mm -hmm. uh, to his church there, brought to his home uh, before it was, uh, it was laid to rest yeah. uh, the following day. And so, um, so all of those, of course, the family makes all those arrangements, but the religious re religious leaders and the village leaders uh, have a tremendous role to play, not only in the ceremony itself, yeah, but also in the care of the of the people who are left behind. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's interesting. Uh, now you have one of the things that sometimes people don't think about. They're thinking about it now more than they ever have before because of COVID and the sort of strain that was put on essential staff like frontline hospital workers, nurses, and emergency room uh, physicians. So we're, we might be finally getting to a point where we are reconciling with the feelings that come from people who are our caretakers on a daily basis. You have seen it for a long time, I imagine, in Medical Teams International, with all of the different healthcare workers that are sent around the globe um, and what they see and the feelings they get with it. Can you talk about some of the emotions that you see from medical teams, international staff themselves who go of their own volition to some of these different places and how they internalize some of the things that they see and how you guys help them? First, uh, I think it's important to understand how uh, it's important to realize, you know, how did the person pass away? How did they die? Um, because if they were in, uh, elderly in their 80s, 90s, um, then it's, it's a celebration of life mm. uh, in that regard. Um, and, and if they're people of faith, then they see this passing as, as um, entrance into a new life right. with God. Right. Um, 
However, there are times when the loss is very, is also very, very difficult, much more difficult. It yeah. could be the loss of a baby. Um, um, you were sharing earlier that Rachel was on your show from mm -hmm. Uganda yeah. and she was pregnant at the time and she lost her baby uh, six months after birth. And I was with Rachel, you know, and she's still processing and grieving mm. and we provide opportunities for her to share um, and to work through what, what her pain is um, and at her level and at her speed um, when she is ready, she's gone back to work and she's doing well, uh, but the loss is is uh, overwhelming at yeah. times. Yeah, there's a Congolese refugee. Um, she lost two babies um, simply because she did not have access to a C-section, and um, and she would have to drive two and a half hours to get to the hospital from the refugee camp. So medical teams decided because um, uh, this is so egregious that yeah. that we established uh, a a surgical ward in the health facility for C-sections. Wow. Um, and so the same woman, her third baby, she was able to have a live baby in her arms. Wow. And, and the joy was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but her pain was also very real. Right. Um, at the loss of her children, because, because she knew that if she had had access to the right care, they would be alive today. Wow. And, and, that's, and we know that too. And that's why we have to act and yeah. do something to prevent these um, these preventable deaths. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, then there are people, um, Syrian refugees, and I've I've sat with one woman, and she's she was from Aleppo, and she was in this tent in Lebanon, in a in a farm field in Lebanon, um, uh, telling me the story that her husband told her to leave with the children, and he would be coming after her. Um, she later heard from Lebanon that her husband had been collected by the police, by the military uh, in Syria, and had witnesses had seen that he had been shot and killed. Wow. She refuses to accept that until she actually um, sees him, mm. his body. She refused, she told me, I refuse to mourn because um, I still want to remain hopeful. Wow. And so, so these these tragedies of life, these atrocities that people are witnessing, um, has has caused them. First of all, as a refugee, your your attention is on your own survival and the survival of your children, um, and then and then to deal with what you left behind and who you left behind is is sometimes also a luxury. Yeah, it's only in those quiet moments at night, I'm sure, where um, where the tears start to flow and the the mourning uh, takes place. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. For when a person, let's say, let's say you have a person who is working a refugee camp in Uganda, and they are a person who has come from the United States. They're a volunteer, a doctor or a nurse who has come to volunteer at the refugee camp. Uh, they see things that, you know, they see death, they see people suffering. How they come back here, how do you help them adjust to what they've seen? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we, it's a duty of care that we take highly, um, uh, our responsibility. And, you know, most of the times a, a doctor will have difficulty returning back home um, 
because they they saw a, someone pass away, typically a child, mm. who, if they were in their hospital here, would have survived. Wow. And so it's just a it's because they don't have all the resources that they normally would have at their disposal at home. That is part of the the transition that they make when they come back. Um, I remember one doctor said, my first day on the field, the child died. And the last day on the field, the child passed away. And when he got home, he just had to be in his room for three days wow. and talk to no one. Wow. It's in those situations where we reach out. Every, every volunteer receives a welcome home packet. And in that packet is uh, the invitation to to uh, speak to someone, a professional, and we give them those resources available to them. Right. Um, we also send this to the family members as well. If you notice these things of the returning um, spouse or father, um, please uh, encourage them to reach out. We can't force them to seek out services, but we certainly strongly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that that's there because I think that that is a new thing we're navigating through. Grief with first responders, grief with frontline hospital workers. Uh, we've only been doing that for maybe 20, 25 years at all. And so it's nice to see that the medical teams has actually thought about that with regards to the folks that volunteer. And, and because of COVID and because of uh, our own um, situation, yeah. you know, we, how, how do we connect with one another? You know, we're using Zoom. We're thankful for the technology. Yeah. But, it's, you know, we're, we are relational beings. Uh, and so, you know, how do we make sure that we're staying connected? And so we've had to be creative in yeah. how we do that yeah. uh, as an organization. And we're still surrounded around the same mission and the calling that we have and, um, and still contributing as a group uh, when we're not together in the office. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's a challenge, but it's one that uh, it's quite necessary. So it's elevated the need yeah. for staff care. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the organization. Exactly. So what else do you want folks to know about uh, some of the other cultures, some of the other places around the world, some of the people that you have met? Is there anything else you'd like for our listeners to to understand about about the world we live in? Well, I think first of all, um, we all have the same emotions and the same. Um, hurts and mornings and of loss. Um, and we may, we may express it in a different way. Uh, one, one thing that might be different is that the, the family is usually part of the body preparation for burial. Mm. And so when, when a loved one dies, the family um, washes the body and prepares it uh, for burial. Wow. Now, this has been really an issue in Liberia some years ago, a few years ago with Ebola, mm, right. because Ebola was still uh, active even after the person passes away, and they could they were that's how it was uh, being transmitted to other family members. It was wow. in the burial process, the body washing process, that Ebola um, uh, was transmitted to others in the family and then throughout a community. So um, so it 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 became an issue in working with the faith leaders again to get them to understand that this is causing more people to contract the disease and that practice had to be curtailed. But that is a typical, um, a, a typical uh, procedure as part of the burial. And usually people, you know, there isn't cremation, uh, it, the body right. is buried 
And it's usually, as I mentioned uh, with my colleague, he's buried in their home village. Uh, they, they're always brought home. Another interesting thing is that uh, attendees, uh, I appreciate um, the role that the org your organization plays uh, in helping with funeral expenses. Mm. But frequently uh, in Africa, you go to the funeral and you you give a gift to help pay for the funeral expenses. Okay. okay. So you're you're part of with the family and supporting the family. It's an expression of love to the family by assisting with the funeral expenses. Right. Right. Uh, and of course, in our Anglo cultures, you know, we're not as demonstrative uh, as as some others in other cultures. So there would be more wailing uh, mm. in the Middle East, for example. In Africa, there may be a high trilling sound, usually uh, by the women, as a form of, of mourning. It's also for celebration, but of mourning as well. And so those are a few different distinctives that we may not be familiar with, but are uh, very common practice in other parts of the world. Yeah, one of the things we like to say a lot uh, in, in, in the podcast is how universal the concept of grief is. You know, the idea that there are very few things, especially in our society today, that that aren't politicized, that aren't, you know, that aren't partisan. But it doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or what, what part of the city you come from. When you lose somebody, especially a child, you will not be able to outspend, outrun, outvote, out anything your grief, you will be dealing with the same issue that this other person in a very different position is dealing with. And that's what I love about being able to talk about this around the world, because I think what it does is it shrinks our world a bit to, to where we get to a point where we are all, we do realize that when you lose somebody, you're on the same, you're on the same playing field. You have the same feelings as somebody thousands of miles away. Yes. I mean, that's very true, Phil. And and one of the one of the things I said about medical teams that so we focus on the health systems and health of the individual, but we're looking not only at the uh, physical health of the person, but the emotional and spiritual health as well. So it means you know healing their their brokenness. You know we're all broken, mm -hmm. and healing the brokenness of whether it's their body or are their their spirit or their emotional. Um, brokenness. We want to be there with them yeah. to help them see it through that. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so how can folks support Medical Teams International? What are some of the ways that people can continue to uplift your mission and help people around the world? First of all, go to our website at medicalteams.org. Um, and there will be a, a lot of opportunities to be involved. But let me just encourage you in the spirit of our founder, Ron Post, um, it's great to be listening and learning. Um, act. Uh, let's let's get up and act and do something in our own communities. Uh, you know, if if it's with medical teams, please join us. Uh, uh, that would be great. But if it's with something, someone else, or someone, a local organization in your own community, um, wonderful. Uh, just let's get involved and get action into into work. Excellent, excellent. Well said, sir. <laughs> well, Joe, uh, this is a fascinating con I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. I really want to thank you for coming on and making the world, the big, the big, huge world a little bit smaller for everybody so that they can understand that we are all going through these sort of things together. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you.
Okay, so that was our interview with Joe DiCarlo. He was a fascinating uh, individual to talk to. As we kind of talked at the outset, the fact that folks will stay in those refugee encampments for essentially a generation of their family is pretty incredible. Uh, One of the things that I found really interesting about our conversation with Joe was the fact that they've actually done a little bit better with coronavirus response in places like Africa because they have had things like Ebola in the past. Wow, yeah. Right? So they so they hey, that makes sense. Right. So they have this built in sort of like they saw it coming and they're like, ooh, this looks like the things that we've dealt with in the past. So in a weird way, they were almost more prepared for wow. it than we were. Right. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I found that one interesting. And then mm-hmm. it was really neat to just hear him talk about you know that medical teams, international staff do cope with a lot of these things. They do have a, you know, they do see a lot of trauma, and there is a sense sometimes that they feel a little helpless because they make it to these areas. They want to try mm-hmm. and make a difference, and then they find themselves at a few points not being able to. And that was that's really hard for them to kind of wrap their brain around sometimes. Yeah, so, yeah, really interesting conversation with him. I really love having an uh, when we, you can make your big world a little bit smaller. I always like that. That's yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, I like when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, to close out, we still have our endowment golf tournament. As far as we know, people, it's, it's on. It's still going. It's still going. We, we want... are so excited to I have know. our in-person event. <laughs> I know. I know. How how pumped are you to have an in-person event this year? I mean, it's the only one. So I I, pff, let's make it big. I know. Go I big know. or go home. Yeah, we're really excited. We've got some new sponsors who've decided to come out, and actually, they're going to they're going to have staff on their on their tee boxes and stuff like that. So yep. that'll be really fun. We got a brand new putting contest we're going to do this year for folks. So if you haven't signed up already, please do so. We've got a really great lineup of teams. I think we're over 20 yes. already. And best dress award. So we are encouraging costumes, funky, funny, yes. uh, wigs, whatever you want to do, yes. because we always like to have a good time and laugh. So Go crazy this year, too, because yeah. it's the one time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we already have heard that we have a few teams that are excited to dress up and can't wait. So awesome. Awesome. it is a it's a good event. It's really yeah. fun. We always have good weather. So I hope that we will have good weather again. I know. I know. Um, and it's just super fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's going to be really cool. So we invite everybody to hasn't had an opportunity. Hop on the website. Check it out. It's on raceforrowan.org and you can take it from there and you can get to our you can get to our golf tournament. Yep. And then finally, we as most folks know. We've alerted everybody. It's been on Facebook, those who signed up for it. We are moving the wine night to a virtual event. It'll look a little bit like our annual uh, auction that we that ended up going virtual in, in April. It'll look a little bit like that. We will have some fun new stuff, though, as well. Mm-hmm. That will be rolling out. It'll be a little fundraiser we do at the end of the year. It's on November 7th, which is a Saturday. And uh, it'll kind of be the same sort of vibe that we've had in the past with these. And then hopefully... Fingers crossed. We don't have to do any of that anymore. And then next year's dinner auction will be like an in-person thing, like everything's fine. Yep. So let's keep our fingers crossed on that one, our collective fingers crossed. Uh, So that's it for today's show. We want to thank Joe DiCarlo, the global ambassador for Medical Teams International, coming on. We want to thank all of you for listening. Remember, if you haven't had an opportunity, share this with your friends, get them to subscribe, rate, and review our performance, because the more you do the more we end up in other news feeds for other folks and the more we can help. So thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.